to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guest is Courtney Darts from an organization called the Pro Bono Partnership. The partnership provides pro bono business and transactional legal services to nonprofit organizations in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut to help them achieve their goals, avoid risk, and better serve their stakeholders. Since its founding in 1997, the partnership has assisted more than 2,300 nonprofits with more than 10,000 legal matters, enabling them to more effectively feed the hungry, house the homeless, promote the arts, protect the environment, and provide essential programs to children, the elderly, immigrants, the disabled, the LGBTQ community, the unemployed, and others. Courtney is the Director of Education at the Partnership. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Courtney. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rena. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, things like that. Uh, sure. So I grew up about 50 miles north of New York City, um, and I went to college in Connecticut at Fairfield University, uh, where I majored in English and art history. And when I graduated from college, I really didn't have any idea that I might go to law school. I was thinking I might teach um, and was considering maybe pursuing graduate studies. Um, and so with an eye to maybe wanting to be a college professor, I actually went back and worked at the university where I had gone to school for several years um, in the visual and performing arts department. And as part of the work I did there, um, I worked on some grants with the public schools in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is um, an urban school district with a lot of challenges. And that work got me interested in policy and nonprofits. Um, and so that's what ultimately led me to law school. Any other reasons that you think motivated you to become a lawyer? Um, well, I always liked research and writing. Um, and I liked the idea of being an advocate. Um, so when I went to law school, I had worked out that I saw my career in the public interest sphere. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what form that would take, but I had a strong sense of social justice and, and wanting to sort of um, be involved in, in advocating for other people's causes. And so that's really why law school seemed to make the most sense. Um, and then practically speaking, I got a scholarship to go to Fordham Law School, which is what um, made it really possible for me to do that and, and to, to be able to launch my career pretty early on in public interest work. Yeah. Talking law school economics, that's when things get real. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. Very real. <laughs> yep. That's a great decision-making factor. Now, you mentioned <laughs> that you were interest in, interested in access to justice and that you were on sort of a public interest track. What do you think sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? Um, it's a good question. I mean, to some extent, I think it's, well, probably it really goes back to how I was raised. Both my parents are very community-minded, um, volunteer a lot. My dad was a teacher. Um, my mom also trained as a teacher. They thought a lot about um, issues of poverty and volunteered their time and supported a number of charities and so it and, and continue to do so today. And so 
the, that was very much part of sort of the culture that I was raised in. Um, and, and so to some extent, I think it was kind of there naturally and some kind of extent it was sort of um, encouraged. Um, and so I think that's really where the passion came from. Um, I really... You know, in, in college, this is, this is very idealistic, but I had a quote up on my wall that said, to believe in something and not to live it is dishonest, which is a quote from Gandhi. And I really did think about that a lot in time of choosing my career and then specifically choosing to focus on working in an agency that promotes pro bono because um, I think a lot of people want to do something good for their community, um, and that's going to manifest in different ways for different people. Um, but one of the things I love about pro bono is that regardless of sort of what kind of path you've chosen as a lawyer, um, there's an opportunity to sort of contribute to something bigger than yourself um, and, and in a way that's really meaningful um, and where you're bringing a lot of really important skills to the table to to benefit a, a population that wouldn't have access to that otherwise. So so yeah, all of that sparks my passion. Yeah, it's such a nature nurture dynamic going all the way back to your family, and you you can see the elements yeah. sparkle throughout. So tell me a little bit about your experience at Fordham because it's definitely a law school that's known for having an amazing commitment to the public interest. Yes. So um, Fordham has, um, well, in part, I think it's sort of baked into the school's identity overall. Fordham is a Jesuit school, and although the law school is um, entirely secular and attracts people from all different kinds of faiths, I think that initial identity of sort of um, in the service of others is very much part of the university's overall ethos and and very much exemplified in the mission of the law school. Um, And then when I was at Fordham, I was lucky enough to be accepted into their public interest program, the Stein Scholars Program. So for the three years I was there, I was part of cohort of students who were um, taking courses together and being mentored and supported in various ways into all different um, types of careers in public interest. And those are still to this day, some of my closest friends from law school, um, and, you know, all doing very different things, but I'm still in touch with many of the, the uh, administrators and professors from there. It was, to use your earlier word, a very nurturing environment um, to study law and to prepare for a career in public interest work. So... Big shout out to Fordham. A lot of amazing. Big shout out to Fordham. Yeah, a lot of amazing pro bono leaders come out of Fordham Law yeah. School. So it's it's a it's a great place and a holds a big place in the pro bono community. So let's let's get back to your journey. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about how you got to the pro bono partnership. What was your path? Yeah. So to some extent, um, it was just really a stroke of good luck because. Um, I was looking for an opportunity my first summer, um, in, in that first summer when I was looking for, for work after my first year of law school, to do something in the nonprofit sphere. And there are really not that many agencies across the country that do the kind of legal services work we do at the Pro Bono Partnership, which is providing free transactional pro bono assistance to, to nonprofit organizations. Um, it so happened, though, that Pro Bono Partnership is one of them, and it was in White Plains, New York, where I was living with my then-boyfriend. So um, I saw this 
agency that was doing exactly the kind of work that I thought would be interesting and it was it was essentially in my backyard and that that just doesn't happen but it did for me and I was um here uh that first summer that was back in 2006 um and then I continued to volunteer here on and off through law school and then um, spent one year working at a large law firm, which was a very good experience, um, and I can talk about that a little bit, but um, ultimately was hoping to to work in a place like this um, for my career, and a job opened up um, in 2009, and so I came back, and I've been here ever since. Ah, wonderful. So we'll we'll circle back to, to some of those points, but before we go, mm-hmm. you know, too far down the road, tell us a little mm-hmm. bit in general about the Pro Bono Partnership. What's the organization's mission? Give us a general overview of its various activities for people who aren't familiar. Yeah, happy to do it. So um, Pro Bono Partnership uh, exclusively represents nonprofit organizations in Connecticut, New Jersey, and in New York State. In New York, we are not in the five boroughs of New York City. There's another organization that works there, but we work with nonprofits um, primarily on Long Island and in the lower Hudson Valley and really throughout the state and then the entire state of Connecticut and the entire state of New Jersey. And um, our mission is to provide those nonprofits, as I said, with free transactional legal assistance, which is essentially everything aside from litigation. So we work with nonprofits on corporate matters, contract reviews, employment projects, which are our biggest area of need, actually, um, real estate matters, tax issues. We help start new nonprofits. We help with intellectual property issues. We advise on compliance with uh, fundraising regulations. We help nonprofits form, merge, dissolve. It, it really runs a massive gamut, and we do it primarily with the assistance of hundreds of volunteer lawyers from corporations and law firms throughout Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. Um, A certain number of the matters are handled directly by our staff, but more than 80% are coordinated by the partnership for placement with um, volunteers who have the appropriate expertise to take them on. So if a nonprofit has an employment issue, we will get an employment attorney to advise them on that. If they want to file for trademark protection, we'll get an intellectual property attorney to advise them on that. If they need a lease for new space reviewed, we'll get a real estate attorney to do that. And so um, over the course of our existence, and we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year, we've worked with many nonprofits um, on multiple projects involving many wonderful pro bono volunteers. I want to follow up. Why do you think employment is the number one most common area. I mean, it'd be fun to do, give people a quiz, you know, and be like, what's the number one area? I wonder if people would get it. What, is there a kind of, do you think there's a reason behind that? Yeah, I I think it's risk. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, I think what people don't always realize outside of the sector is that nonprofits are essentially businesses, uh, like for-profit businesses. They have many of the same legal needs. And so, um, and the employment laws are can be complex, um, and they change a lot. So for um, a sector where it's common that, you know, our typical client has a few employees, 
but no one who's necessarily a human resources professional by training um, and has real expertise in this area on staff, then having outside counsel to stay in compliance with the laws, avoid risk, and make sure that the environment is um, as healthy as it can be for the management of the organization is really important. So that drives a lot of our requests for assistance. Do you still encounter the notion that pro bono is just for litigators or that all pro bono matters revolve around going to court? Do you have to kind of beat away, beat down that myth at all? I personally have encountered it less than I think some of my colleagues who have been here longer. I do think it definitely still exists, but... Um, but I don't encounter it so much day to day. I think it's it's sort of been the opposite, really, which is that I think there are a lot of non-litigators out there who are really wanting to do pro bono work, um, but aren't sure where to find the opportunity. So they think they should be able to do pro bono work, but they're not sure how. Um, and maybe that is just a different way of saying what you just said, which is that they, they think most pro bono opportunities are for litigators. But um, I, I, what I find is that transactional attorneys really do want to do pro bono work and are, I mean, it's a self-selecting group to some extent, but are like really delighted when they're able to deploy their special expertise um, to the benefit of one of our clients. And, and partly that has to do maybe with our founding and culture as an organization, too, because we were really started by in-house corporate attorneys from General Electric and a handful of other companies in New York and Connecticut who were looking for a way to do pro bono um, and couldn't find sort of structured vehicle for, for, for providing those projects. And so um, I think, uh, I mean, we evangelize all the time about the importance of transactional pro bono. Um, I think maybe it is, it's still out there, but it doesn't impact, I have to say, thankfully, um, our ability to recruit volunteers too much day to day. Yeah, I, I think that's an area where there has been tremendous progress and through yeah. organizations like the Partnership and other groups yeah. and there's just sort of been a sea change and much more awareness, let's say, over the past decade even. So I'm going to call that progress. <laughs> let's, <Yeah. laughs> let's talk about you. Let's talk about your role and how you spend your time. What, what do you do all day? Well, my role has changed somewhat um, in the in the eight years that I've been here. I spent my first six years here at the partnership as a staff attorney, um, and in that role, I worked directly with nonprofit clients and volunteers. So my day-to-day -day work involved um, reviewing requests for assistance from new organizations. We, we put every client applicant through a screening process where we're looking at what they're doing and, and their um, structure and their capacity and what their legal needs are. So I did a lot of work with screening new clients and also helping existing clients diagnose their legal needs um, and then would coordinate with volunteers on those specific projects, co-counseling as necessary. Um, I also did quite a lot of legal work myself. My day-to-day -day practice focused on corporate governance issues for nonprofit organizations, tax-exempt law, and compliance with um, the laws that are kind of unique to the nonprofit sector, like fundraising regulation. Those are all areas where we have some volunteers with that um, expertise, but most of our volunteers don't have it. So that 
was the kind of work I focused on as a staff attorney. Um, I also would do some training for nonprofit boards and staff um, on nonprofit legal issues and outreach, going out and meeting with potential volunteers at law firms and corporations. Um, my role has shifted a little bit in the last two years because um, I've since become our first director of education. Um, we had always had educational programs here at the partnership, but they were fairly decentralized. Every lawyer did a little bit, every staff lawyer did a little bit of the educational work. And so the idea was in creating this position, we centralized administration of those educational programs in one person across all three states. Um, and also freed up some staff time to focus on developing new new programs. So while I still do work with clients um, occasionally, that's a much smaller part of my day-to-day job. And now uh, more day-to-day I'm focused on communicating with people around planning educational programs and other sort of special projects here at the partnership where um, I can be of use. For example, I've been involved in the redesign of our website, the the relaunch of our database, so sort of like a special projects gal um, as well. A Jill of all trades. I, I actually, it's a great role for you. We were so lucky to have you facilitated a, a session at our conference in March. It, it was slightly embarrassing. We, we just sort of met you and it was your first conference and we're like, uh, <laughs> what are you doing? We're going to put you to work. Um, but you are amazing. Um, you're such a good trainer and teacher. And so it's a, it's a great position for you. Well, that's really kind of you to say, Rena. And I, I, I don't think you should sell your, your, your contribution <laughs> to the program short because we should note that you co-facilitated that discussion with me and we're um, a fantastic uh, colleague to work with, um, and that session was on serving on a nonprofit board, which is for for attorneys, which is a topic we do um, quite a bit of training around because many attorneys are interested in serving on a nonprofit board, but are either concerned about or in some cases just unaware of the ethical pitfalls um, that can that can occur if you start inadvertently starting to provide legal advice to the nonprofit board on which you sit. So it was it was um, a privilege to be asked to present and, and a lot of fun to deal with you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for that. Um, so I think something people struggle with, I would say, whether they're in legal services organizations and nonprofits or running law firm pro bono programs or really anywhere is, you know, time. We have our wish list and our to-do list and it's so long and the day only has so many hours. Um, is Are there things that you wish you could be doing more of or that you wish you could be doing some of or any of if only you had more time? Uh, sure, <laughs> of course. Uh, everyone's got that list. I mean, I think the, the main thing I struggle with um, is blocking out the big chunks of time that's necessary to do the sort of creative thinking to develop new educational programs and training opportunities. Um, It's hard to do that kind of work in little bits and pieces, and so um, I think uh, that, that to me... Although I do do quite a lot of it, I always want to be doing more of it um, and more of that sort of big picture strategic thinking about making sure that we're creating new content and we're um, 
making it accessible. You know, we, we have a pretty diverse array of clients here at the partnership. We have some very small community-based, I mean, all of our clients are community-based nonprofits, but we have some very small grassroots organizations. And then we actually have some larger organizations which qualify for our services because, you know, 98% of their revenue is tied up in grants and they have no discretionary income for for legal expenses. And so um, trying to craft programs that are appropriate to those different audiences um, and making them uh, engaging and topical, I, I could always spend more time doing that for sure. Oh, I sort of, we're, we're speaking during a bit of a heat wave, but I like to think of that as snow day activities. <laughs> you know, like if you, right, if you had kind of a quiet day where people thought you were closed or, you know, just kind of, because you can't. Exactly. You, you can't, I, I come in with the best of intentions yeah. in the morning yeah. and uh, it's, it's, you know, some days it works better than others uh, in terms of what you get pulled into. The uh, the flip side of being the special projects person. <laughs> so, uh, but but um, but I, I really enjoy that kind of work, and I'm always happy when I can put more time into it. So, so since you mentioned it, I I was hoping we could spend a few minutes drilling down into how you determine if a nonprofit organization is eligible for pro bono services. You mentioned it with sort of larger nonprofits that, you know, mm-hmm. have their money tied up with grants. Um, what are, mm-hmm. could you, just for people who aren't familiar, what are some mm-hmm. of the criteria that you look at? Um, so it's, it's a very timely question because we've actually just been going through a strategic planning process here where we've reevaluated our client criteria again to sort of ensure that we're working with the groups that we want to work with and that our volunteers want to be working with. Um, and I think, you know, our criteria are um, somewhat broad. They are the organization has to be in our geographic service area. Um, they have to be providing an important social service, uh, working with the poor or uh, otherwise disadvantaged community or an underserved population, or um, providing an arts or a civic or environmental program um, that's having a significant impact on the community they're serving. So, so that's a long way of saying we look at where they're located and we look at their mission. Um, and then we look at their inability to pay for legal services. And so we don't have a hard cap on budgets. Um, but as a practical matter, most of our clients, I think, are agencies with, you know, less than probably $250,000 in annual revenue um, for whom paying a lawyer would take money, significant amounts of money from program delivery, staffing or program resources. Um, as I mentioned, we, do, we don't have a hard cap, though. We will work with organizations that are more, uh, more resourced than that, and we work with some much larger social service agencies. But when, once the budget starts getting above a million dollars, we really are doing, I mean, we look at finances across the board, but we really do a deep dive into the organization's tax returns, their audited financials. Um, We really want to get a sense of where they're spending their money to determine whether or not pro bono legal assistance is appropriate. Um, We're not assisting groups that have um, significant amounts of of, uh, program surplus or, you know, money that could be used to pay for a lawyer. Um, but I would say for most of our clients, you know, the issue isn't um, going to be 
well, if we can't get pro bono services, then we'll hire somebody. The issue is, well, if we can't get pro bono services, this work just isn't going to get done. Um, they'll, they'll hire a lawyer if they have to, if they're being sued, for example. But when it comes to sort of the day-to-day, um, should we have a lawyer look over this contract before we sign it? Should we have a lawyer review this lease before we move into our new space? There are a lot of, of organizations um, that will forgo having a lawyer do that because they don't think they can find the money in the budget. And so those are the kinds of groups we're trying to work with. I think that's really helpful background. And it's particularly helpful for people who um, live in communities where there isn't necessarily an intermediary or a feeder organization, Mm -hmm. and they are themselves you know, fielding requests and having to do sort Mm -hmm. of intake and decide, do they meet whatever eligibility criteria we're going to use? So I think it's helpful to Mm -hmm. have a framework and particularly a very Mm -hmm. well thought out, you know, and and well honed and utilized one. So it's very helpful background. Yeah. I mean, this is a big um, hallmark of our service model is that every client matter has a staff attorney here at the partnership that is assigned to um, work with that client and the volunteer who's placed on their matter. I mean, this is uh, this is a big part of why we, we have that feature, because the staff attorney here who does the screening and the diagnosis of the legal issue um, becomes really familiar with the work that the organization is doing, um, their funding uh structure, um, their staffing, and so is able to sort of provide a bridge to the volunteer attorneys so that the, the, the project um, is specific and is within the volunteer area of expertise but fits into sort of a broader analysis of the organization's legal issues and needs. Um, and you can certainly do that on your own. You don't need necessarily to have an agency in your community to decide that you want to be a pro bono attorney for a nonprofit, but I think this is the big value add that a lot of our volunteers rely on um, for us. Oh, yes. If we could replicate you <laughs> and put you in every <laughs> community around the country, we'd we'd be in a lot better shape. So, yeah. <laughs> well, having said that, there are a lot of other programs. Yeah. I shouldn't say a lot would be a stretch, but there are um, other programs like us yep. in other parts of the country, they tend to be smaller programs of bar associations or larger legal services providers. Um, but um, there, there are community development, community economic development programs um, like us in other places. That said, you know, um, in the last 10 years, we have. Um, spun off Pro Bono Partnership of Atlanta and more recently Pro Bono Partnership of Ohio, um, largely because there were groups of attorneys in those communities who saw the model and said, well, we should have that here and took a leadership role in, in bringing it to their, to their um, homes. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's still a sort of niche area of pro bono work, and there aren't a ton of places that do it, but um, the, the need for it is recognized in a lot of places. Yeah, well said. So what do you enjoy most about your position and about working at the partnership? Um, well, for sure, the people. Uh, I, the clients do amazing work. Um, the volunteers are also really inspiring, and, and I have terrific colleagues. So, so I 
day-to-day, the people um, are fantastic. Um, but I also really like the, um, the practicality of what we do. I guess that, that might be a way of putting it. Um, a lot of what we're doing is very focused on, you know, very real business legal needs of our clients. Um, and so I like that. Um, I like that uh, an organization needs a contract reviewed. We review the contract for them. They're in a better position for having had a lawyer look at it and negotiate for them. The matter is done. That That's a tangible thing that I that has a lot of good for that organization and, and often leads to a lot of interesting conversations with clients around non-legal considerations that are important to that particular issue, and I always enjoy those kinds of conversations, too, about business. Um, And then I guess um, something else I really enjoy is um, I've had a really wonderful opportunity to grow here, Um, and my job has evolved over time, and, and I've had the chance to exercise some creativity in the development of our educational programs, and so um, it's been a really wonderful place to spend the last eight years of my career because um, what I do today is not what I did when I came in eight years ago, and, and it's been wonderful to grow within the organization. Which isn't always common. I mean, sometimes in particularly smaller organizations, you're kind of locked in where you are. So the ability to have professional development and growth is special, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point. I think that's that's an issue in a lot of legal services, but also just a lot of, you know, nonprofits and small organizations generally. And um, I think that um, to some extent, I've been very lucky, um, but also to some extent, um, I was always interested in growing myself and so took opportunities for professional development, asked questions, volunteered to be tasked to special projects, and so um, have, been, have been lucky to work in an environment where that's been supported, but also that um, that suited my personality really well to sort of think about new ways I could add value and, and, then, and then go do them. You talked a little bit about the structure of the partnership and the training, the mentoring, the, the, the ways you ensure that both the clients are well served and that the pro bono lawyers have a good experience. What have you found works best to incentivize and engage pro bono lawyers in your work? Um, well, <laughs> you know, it, it's a combination of, of things, really. Um, and as I think I said earlier, to some extent, it's a self-selecting group that's going to volunteer. But having said that, um, the truth is that the greatest incentive is having the support of the general counsel of a legal department or the buy-in of um, you know, a, a managing partner or a significant number of partners at a law firm. Um, because what I have found is there's lots of people who are interested in doing transactional pro bono, but if they feel like it's not going to be supported within their work environment or that it's something that they're going to have to find a way to shoehorn around their work commitments and their family life and, and everything else that's important to them, um, that's, it's more that that's going to be a disincentive to doing it. And so, um, for sure, the number one um, incentivizer, I think, is a GC or um, partners who are committed to pro bono and, and in the in the best case scenario, who are modeling for their 
employees how pro bono is valued within the within their company or their law firm um, and are doing it themselves, that those are the absolute best motivators. Yeah, I think leadership is essential. Yeah, it's really there are no two ways about it. Leadership is just critical. Um, beyond that, I, and I think we we spend a lot of time time talking to lawyers and, you know, the, the main thing I, I often say is um, this is so much easier than you think it is, um, particularly in the type of transactional pro bono that we're doing here. I mean, it is no exaggeration to say that I think 98% of our volunteer matters are accomplished by lawyers sitting at their desk, um, talking to their client over the phone, and sending emails. Um, it's it's very rare that our volunteers and our clients have to meet in person to get a project done. Certainly many of them choose to meet in person because they strike up a relationship and they, they want to work together in that way. But, you know, I have volunteers in uh, New York City who are working with nonprofits, you know, hundreds of miles upstate remotely, and it's all from their desk. And um, most of the projects, not all, but a lot of them are not time sensitive and so are really the kinds of things that people can find the time to do um, and can do in a way that I think will work neatly with their work commitments and their family commitments and everything else they've got going on in their very busy lives. That's a really good takeaway that pro bono doesn't have to be scary and it can be very meaningful. So it's, uh, it's very encouraging that way. Well, yep. you've just hit the nail on the most important head, which is you will never have a more grateful client than your pro bono client. Um, and that's, that's probably true of any pro bono client, but for sure it's true of the nonprofits that we're working with. Um, the volunteers you know, often say how much professional and personal satisfaction they get out of their projects. And a lot of that just has to do with how grateful the nonprofits are for their help. What's on the horizon? Tell us about something new in the works. This is a big year for us, actually, on, on, on a number of fronts. So, um, so I think I mentioned a little earlier in the podcast, this is our 20th anniversary. So, um, so that's, a, that's a big deal for us. We do um, an annual fundraiser every year, and this year will be the 20th. And so uh, it's going to be a wonderful celebration in October um, where we're bringing together some of the initial, original founders of Pro Bono Partnership um, along with um, honoring uh, two longtime supporters, Merck and Morgan Lewis, um, and and it's just going to be a wonderful celebration. Um, so we're really all looking forward to that. Um, back in January, we opened our fourth office. We opened a new office on Long Island at Toro Law School. So that's been exciting to see the program growing in that direction. And then um, also this fall, we're going to be welcoming our first Equal Justice Works fellow, um, uh, Greg Kimball, who is graduating or just graduated from Brooklyn Law School, is going to be joining us for a two-year fellowship focusing on uh, working specifically with um, nonprofits in uh, New York State in communities that um, 
has significant minority populations and uh, lots of issues relating to poverty and helping local residents of those communities um, strengthen the existing nonprofits that are providing services and potentially help uh, individuals who are looking to form new nonprofits to uh, provide creative solutions to the, the problems of those communities face. So we are extremely excited to have Greg joining the staff this fall. Well, happy anniversary, and it's exciting to spend a year celebrating, and I know it takes a lot of work. That goes into successful celebrations as well, but it it, does. It's, a, it's a big accomplishment, and it's definitely worthy <laughs> of celebration. So a good segue, actually, from the Equal Justice yeah. Works Fellow and you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, which I thought was fascinating, that you actually spent the mm-hmm. summer after your first year of law school at the partnership. It's not always common, you know, people spending their, mm-hmm. their 1L summer at a place where they ultimately go back to for, um, mm-hmm. for a longer length of time. But I was curious if you could share some advice for lawyers or law students who think that they may want to work at a public interest organization or do public interest work as a career. I know there's, you know, a lot of different ways that you can get into it and a lot of different experiences Mm -hmm. that people can have, but what's your sort of current advice to people who think that that's what they're interested in? I don't know if I have any unique insights, but I think what was most helpful to me was doing a lot of informational interviewing, um, even before I went to law school, actually, but definitely once I was in law school. People were incredibly generous with their time and expertise, and so I spoke to many different people when I was first thinking about going to law school about the benefits of a law degree, how you could use it in different settings, and then once I was in law school and sort of honed in on the kind of work I wanted to do, what kind of experiences people thought I should be having in law school that would help me get to my end goal. And it's actually, that was a big part of the reason I went and worked at a large law firm when I graduated, um, because I was advised by many people that if I wanted to do um, nonprofit transactional work, um, I would get excellent training in a law firm that would um, provide a really good solid background for, for, for working on the kinds of projects that we do at the partnership. So that was a path that made sense for where I wanted to go. But it might not be the path that would make sense for somebody who wanted to do a different type of public interest work. Um, so, so that was all that was very helpful. And then um, certainly, I, and again, this is, this is not unique advice at all, but internships and work experience, networking, you, you can't do enough of it. Um, it really, I, 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 as you noted, I, I was here my first summer, um, but I stayed in touch with the people from here for several years, but, you know, between the time I was a summer associate to the time I came back to work here. Um, you know, would send them emails occasionally, letting them know how I was, asking how they were doing, staying in touch generally about um, what was happening at the agency, volunteering on projects where I could. Um, it, so that that was all extremely helpful in getting my job, and it's time-consuming. You do have to put a lot of time into that, and that can be hard to do when you're in law school, I think, particularly. But Greg, who is the student who w- will be working for us in the fall, 
is somebody who also has gone along a similar path as I did in that he used his time in law school to do a number of different types of projects, um, clinics, internships, um, legal and non-legal, that are all going to be great grounding for the work he'll do as a fellow. I think those are great tips. I I think people have to get information, you know, talk to people, have experiences, and that all helps kind of go into the stew (laughs) and to help you figure out (laughs) what it is that you really want to do. And it's very hard to do that just in an academic setting. And you you really just want to go talk to people and see what resonates with you and have experiences and try things on for size. And I think those are actually all great tips and great tips for the summer, I think, when people um, maybe aren't necessarily in class if you're a law student or you're working in a city where there's people whose brains you can pick and go have a coffee. And I think um, it's it, it's also where email has just revolutionized outreach because <laughs> it's a lot less scary to send some emails to people um, than to try and make contact, you know, in other ways. And I, I think people actually are very generous with their time and like to pay it forward and you just have to kind of take the first step <laughs> and make some asks and uh, no matter where you are in your stage it's 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 helpful for more mature people in their careers to also make connections and, and pick people's brains it doesn't stop just when you graduate no it's true and um and i to use exactly what you said i i do take a number of calls from people every year, usually from Fordham, who have been directed my way, um, students who are thinking about something like this career um, and just want to pick my brain. And I'm always happy to find time to talk to those students, um, particularly because uh, so many people were so kind and talked to me when I was figuring it out. And I think um, it's a piece of career development that um, that you may or may not clue into if you have gone directly to law school from undergraduate, um, as a lot of people do, and if you are identifying a career path for yourself that doesn't fall within sort of one of the more clearly defined tracks, um, you know, certain things that you want to do in law school, there's a very clear path um, to doing it, working in a, in a firm maybe, or um, being a prosecutor, you know, certain things I think are a little clearer than others. I had a very sort of a, a sort of a less traditional career goal, and so um, had to invest a lot more time into talking to people to figure out what that career goal specifically would look like and how I could get to it um, than somebody might have in a different career path. Oh, I think that's a great point. Some you just have to make your own. <laughs> the, the, either the infrastructure or the, the portals uh, are self-made. So I think if you're self-directed and, and know what you want, you just have to uh, use a little bit more uh, shoe leather and you know, kind of make it happen for yourself. Courtney, if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about the partnership or pro bono? Uh, good question. Um, I think that the magic wand, I would like to use it to wave away the fear of failure in pro bono. Um, This is something I notice sometimes with transactional attorneys who have a very specific skill set. You know, maybe they work in banking or um, they do something very specialized in the company or law firm where they work, and they have a hard time... um, imagining themselves taking on a pro bono matter um, 
because it doesn't tap into like very the very specific thing that they do day in and day out. And what I always want to tell those people and what I do tell people and what I'd love to use my magic wand to, to sort of wave away is you can do this. You know, you you there are supports out there. We will be a support for you, but also your colleagues will be a support. And a lot of these projects that we're doing here at the partnership are the kind of thing that, you know, if you're a lawyer who's been practicing for a few years um, in a business environment, you, you have the skills to do this. You can review a simple contract. You can draft a waiver form. Um, you can look at a set of bylaws. I think that um, there are there's a subset of attorneys out there who want to do pro bono, would like to give back to their community, but are so good in their day-in and day-out job and, and have spent so much time building their skill set in that specific area of the law, they they are nervous to take on a pro bono matter for fear that um, they, they might screw it up or that they just aren't as proficient as they need to be to do that project. And, and there are supports here. You're not going to screw it up. Um, we're here to help, but um, there's lots of very, very talented lawyers out there who I think seem to have a reticence to do pro bono because um, they have a fear of failure, and I would say they shouldn't. Um, they, they can do this. That has put a special twinkle in my eye not that long ago. Well, it's probably over a year ago now. I wrote an article for our newsletter about pro bono fear of failure, and I see it in the individual's eyes, right? I, this isn't my area of expertise. I'm not comfortable doing that. I don't want to screw up. I, I can't take risks. Um, but I also see it with law firm pro bono programs, that this is how we've always done things. This is how we're going to continue to do things. And okay, but maybe we can do things better. Maybe we can try things differently. We need to be more open. Uh, we need to get out of our comfort zone. We need to be willing to shake things up. And I think particularly for the lawyer personality, <laughs> that's, that's a bit of a push, but uh, we need to do it. You know, we can't just rest on our laurels and um, stay in our safe spaces. You know, if we're going to bring more <laughs> access to justice, uh, we need to shake things up a bit. Um, so I, I really like identifying that concept and ways to encourage people and assuage those fears, you know, not to minimize their, their valid feelings. I, I, I just think they are over, they're navigatable and uh, we can, uh, we can do better. Totally. I, I would agree with everything you said. I think, I think there is, um, there's sensible risk aversion. And then I think there's just fear and, um, and and what will blow my mind will be the attorney with, you know, 10 years working at very high levels in law firms and, and um, companies who just doesn't feel qualified to do a, a pretty simple contract review or, or, you know, sort of a very basic matter that is not maybe directly related to what they do day to day, but draws on all the skills, skill sets. And, um, and I think certainly, you know, you have to be thoughtful when you're stepping out of your comfort zone, exactly as you said. We, um, I mean, our whole model was set up, right, to tap into attorneys' existing competencies. Um, uh, but those competencies transfer sometimes more broadly than people feel like they do. And I, I just, I want, I want more people to, to believe that. Yeah, that's a great point. Courtney, let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model? 
Um, I have lots of pro bono role models. I mean, um, certainly I've been inspired by the people I've worked for um, here at the partnership, our founder, Rick Hobish, and now Marsha Levy, our executive director, and, and many of my colleagues who have been here a long time. Um, but quite honestly, the truth is, and this is going to sound incredibly cheesy, my pro bono role models are the volunteers we work with um, every day, particularly um, we have a lot of super volunteers who just take on project after project after project, um, you know, who they're not in it for any glory. You know, they just, they just want to help and they find the time. And it's often the busiest people who are finding the most time to do this work. And, and we've been so lucky and so blessed here that we have um, a lot of really wonderful longtime volunteers who, you know, if you pick up the phone and ask them to take on a project, they'll say, yes. Um, or they'll say, "I'll figure out a way to make it work," and they'll and they'll take it on. Um, we we try not to um, take advantage of those folks, but but there's a lot of people out there who are really committed to doing pro bono and and uh, make it a, an integral part of their daily lives. Not everyone's going to be able to put in that same time commitment, but I'm I'm always inspired by really any lawyer who. You know, being a lawyer is hard work. You're pulled in a lot of different directions, client demands, your own personal demands of, you know, your life outside of work. I'm always inspired by anyone who steps up and says, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, this project um, as a volunteer. And, and I'm particularly inspired by the people who do it over and over and over again. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure and very inspiring. Oh, well, thank you so much, Rena. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast, and I very much appreciate being invited to join you today. Thank you so much to Courtney for making the time to be with us and for all the awesome work that she and her colleagues are doing. You can learn more about the Pro Bono Partnership on the web at probonopartner.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show. Hey, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.